people want to own franchises. There's a cachet to being a professional sports owner. It just so happens there's been an uptick in the number of deals for reasons that have more to do with kind of cultural controversies and people like Bezos or capitalism. Welcome to the Powers That Beat Daily, Huck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Friday, December 30th. Today, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about the mysterious billionaire brothers who submitted the winning bid for the Phoenix Suns, now one of the most valuable franchises in sports, and why Jeff Bezos is considered the leading candidate to buy the Washington Commanders. And later, we talk about Sam Bankman-Fried's legal strategy as his former friends and business partners cut deals to testify against him. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. All right, I'm here with Teddy Schleifer back in the Bay Area after what looks like a very charming tour of Southeast Asia. Per my Instagram, yes. <laughs> did you see our friend uh, Peter Hamby out there? I did not see him in the streets of Phnom Penh, but I'm back. Well, we're very happy to have you. We're still looking for Peter, but I'm told he's going to be back at the helm next week. Teddy, I want to talk to you about Sam Bankman-Fried, obviously. But first, you've been following everything that's been happening with some big ownership changes in the sports leagues. And I'll confess that I have not been following this stuff nearly as closely as you, but it's endlessly fascinating. I mean, talk about like the the stratosphere, the name of your newsletter. These are some of the most coveted and exclusive assets in the world. The price just keeps going up higher and higher and higher. If you want an inflation-proof asset, buy a team. Definitely. Let's start with the Phoenix Suns, which Robert Sarver basically had to sell after he and his staff were accused of racist and sexist behavior, verbal abuse. This was a big potential prize for a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are interested in this team. They didn't get it. What happened there? Sure. So so the team was sold or has an agreement to be sold to a guy named Matt Ishbia, who is one of these very wealthy people um, who you've never actually heard of, um, which frankly describes lots of, of wealthy people who are not in you know a sexy industry like tech or finance. Matt Ishbia is the CEO of a, of a mortgage company. He is a former college basketball player, played at Michigan State as a, as a bench player, but sort of always kind of been close to the game. It's always been like rumored around possible franchises, including the Washington Commanders. Ishbia is buying the team for you know around $4 billion. It is an unexpected 
or I guess an expected defeat for anyone in Silicon Valley who was hoping to buy this. I say unexpected because you sort of assume that, you know, the wealthiest people in the world are going to get what they want. Uh, ultimately, you know, Larry Ellison, who was, you know, widely considered to be interested in, in making a bid himself, he ultimately did not win for, you know, what is again, like his like seventh or eighth straight defeat in trying to buy an NBA franchise. And the Suns are going to this guy who's closer to the game than any of these rich tech guys who have never actually played professional basketball, obviously. Well, you already answered what was going to be my next question was like, who the hell are these guys? You have to scroll to like the last page of the Bloomberg Billionaires Index to find them. I was just looking it up before talking to you here. There's something like 750 billionaires in the US. So there are a lot of Matt Ishbia's out there, people who have a ton of money, but the public has never really heard of. Was there anything in particular about his bid that put him over the top? Was it just the fact that he bid four billion when other people were bidding three billion? Or are there other kind of considerations that go into why a guy like this wins when the um Peter Thiel acolytes who put together a bid lost? This is a, a privately held asset. The existing owner can do whatever they want. Robert Sarver did hire Mullis to run a process, but you know, ultimately the league's owners have to approve a sale. But ultimately, you know, this is a, a person-to-person interaction. And if someone wants to take a lower bid, they can. We don't know for sure that there were higher bids. I mean, four billion was around the the kind of the amount that we thought uh, the team would sell for, which is you know definitely a eye popping amount of money for any franchise. But ultimately, I think HBO is probably helped by the fact that he just has stronger NBA relationships. One interesting thing about him, I mean, is just how young he is. I mean, he's I think he's like forty one, forty two years old. Lots of these owners are, are are very old. I mean, Mark Cuban when he bought the Mavericks you know, a while back was seen as like this, you know, young tech, uh, innovative guy who, you know, is going to bring the franchise in a different direction or bring the league in a different direction and start using data. Cuban is now like 65 himself, right? Like he was the young guy who's buying the team. So Ishbia is now, I think, the youngest owner in the NBA. And it'll be interesting to see how he, you know, generationally kind of relates to players, relates to the media, relates to the league in a different way than kind of all these old fogies out there. Well, let's get into the Bezos factor. There was a lot of speculation that he was interested in buying the Suns. He ended up not bidding for them, correct? Uh, yes, correct. It has not been reported that he bid for them, and I do not expect that he actually bid for them. But in part because it's hard to own two teams at once. For instance, Ishbia was interested in the commanders as well, but he recently pulled out of that because probably for financial reasons, yeah, he has his own money spoken for at this point. But Bezos is now considered to be the leading prospective buyer for the commanders, um, which makes a lot more sense to me than him trying to buy the Suns. Bezos spends a lot of time in Washington, D.C. Obviously, he's the owner of the Post, at least as of now. And the idea of him buying the Commanders makes a lot more sense to me. You know, he shows about football games all the time. Obviously, Amazon now hosts the NFL for Thursday Night Football. Bezos grew up playing some football. I didn't know that, but apparently he did. Uh, or he said, he said that in a recent interview. So he likes the game. And, and, you know, to the point you made at the beginning of this, Ben, I mean, people want to own franchises is something that money alone cannot get them as you know we're just talking about when it comes to price tags but there is a cachet to being a professional sports owner and that's why you've frankly seen lots of wealthy people recently like start getting into other non-major four professional sports deals like you know people buying uh you know f1 teams or folks that are you know trying to bring professional soccer or women's soccer more toward the US because there's just a cap on the number of hockey, football, baseball, and basketball teams you can buy. You know, there's like 120 teams there. And, you know, if someone's not selling, then there's only maybe two or three deals a year you can really win. But it just so happens there's been an uptick in the number of deals for reasons that have more to do with kind of cultural 
controversies surrounding Robert Sarver and Daniel Snyder in Washington and people like Bezos are capitalizing. Let's not shed a tear for Snyder. He bought this team for like $750 million and it sounds like it could be going for around $7 billion. Yeah, it's crazy. Do you think that number is real? I mean, that, that would make the Commanders the second or third most valuable team in the NFL potentially? Yeah, look, I mean, the market is set by the highest possible bidder, right? The, the equity value of the teams are really driven by media deals. All of these leagues, the media deals keep marking up the price of the teams again and again and again. And, you know, frankly, there's going to be more and more teams as expansion continues to happen, especially in like the NHL, definitely in the NBA. There's a lot of, you know, thoughts that the league is going to expand. So you, you mentioned these are sort of recession-proof assets. Like these teams don't really go down in value, at least in modern times. So ultimately, Snyder spending $750 million in 1999, you know, 25 years later, he's 10xing that potentially if he sells the whole team. It seems ridiculous, but like the market is not this liquid thing where people can assess how much these things are really worth in real time. Ultimately, you're basing it on like what you think future media deals are going to look like. Future media deals with entities like Amazon, um, which is a conflict of interest that I'm sure other owners will be thinking about. Um, but ultimately, $7 billion, as ridiculous as it sounds compared to historical prices for these teams, like who's to say that the next NFL franchise won't sell for $17 billion or $70 billion? Ultimately, these things are only going up and to the right. Yeah, like you said, it's hard to know how to estimate the value of these teams when a lot of them have not been on the market for years. Obviously, you can um, make some sort of estimate based on their cash flows and the size of the market, the media deals that they have with cable companies or with tech companies that are buying up some of these rights too. But Washington, D.C. and the surrounding area, that's a really big media market. And I presume too that the brand is worth a lot more already with the name change and without Snyder. There's a lot of baggage that's been shoved to the side. And so there's a lot of room for this team to grow as well. Totally, totally. I mean, Snyder has been, uh, you know, albatross on the team. Obviously, for years, he refused to change the name, despite, you know, enormous public pressure. And as of recently, I mean, it's like, you know, the, you know the, what were, the team that was known as the Redskins is now, you know, being hauled before Congress. It's gone beyond just like, oh, local fans hating an owner. I mean, I wonder what his name idea is just in, in American culture. He's become an infamous owner. And, you know, Bezos would give it a, you have a new team name, new owner, potentially a new stadium for the commanders is, is, is being talked about at some point. They could really turn the page from an era that uh, I think lots of Washington fans want to forget. Okay. When we come back, we're going to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried, who's getting arraigned in New York next week and what his legal strategy might look like. Hey guys, it's Peter. I travel all the time, especially in an election year. And as we all know, what luggage you choose matters. Briggs & Riley is my personal favorite because their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they will repair it free of charge. No proof of purchase needed, no questions asked, even if an airline damages your bag. All features were created to address customer pain points for a better travel experience. They're extremely durable with rigorous testing and premium materials to last for life. And one thing I love, they're supremely smooth, shock-absorbing wheels for easy gliding through your travels through whatever airport you're zooming through. 
And hot off the press, the Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It's new and improved and just launched on BriggsRiley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. It has the new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, and then compress it to its original size. So a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, and that's just one of the new features. It's available in black, navy, and olive. So check out all the Briggs and Riley offerings at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. All right, we're back. Teddy, I don't know if you saw these headlines, but I was shocked when I saw online that SBF was expected to cut a plea deal next week. Yeah, I saw that. And then I went and found the original story from Reuters, which was only noting that he's going to enter a plea. The story was changed pretty dramatically. How was the correction on that, Ben? I don't remember. Was it was it prominent or was it kind of wink-winked? Well, I saw probably the second version of the Reuters story, which was technically correct, but just sort of misleadingly headlined. It said he was expected to enter a plea, which made it sound like he was going to enter a guilty plea, right. cut some kind of deal with prosecutors. Uh, no, he, he's just being arraigned next week on January 3rd, but it was picked up some other places, including Yahoo Finance, incorrectly reported that he was entering a guilty plea. And when I last looked, that story was still up. So to be clear, SBF has not entered a guilty plea. He will almost certainly plead not guilty next week. Uh, but Teddy, you got a preview, perhaps, of what his legal strategy might look like. You interviewed him a few weeks earlier, and he basically said to you that he never willingly or intentionally misled investors. Having seen him up close, talked to him one-on-one, -on -one, did you find that argument in any way compelling? I mean, how, how do you think he's going to be able to sell this to a jury? So look, the, I mean, we're obviously in the, in the early innings of this. The facts are changing since we last talked about this, right? I mean, that interview was recorded, you know, before two of his closest associates decided that they were flipping on him, right? And they were going to be testifying, presumably in the case against him, or cooperating with government officials at the SEC and CFTC and DOJ. So everything Sam said in like mid-November, almost or early December feels almost, you know, antiquated. But the gist of his argument is going to be that this was accidental incompetence, that, you know, he was a, was a frantic guy doing lots of things, you know, investing in politics and in media and philanthropy. And, you know, he was running FTX day to day. And, you know, Alameda was this separate entity. The, yeah, he may have owned it. And yeah, he may have been CC'd on some emails. But like, come on, really, that he had no idea what was going on with FTX assets over there. He's ultimately going to be arguing that he's an idiot, basically, that he, quote unquote, fucked up, which is what he was going to say to Congress in his first kind of statement about this whole thing. Um, but that he was not committing fraud, right? This was not a Madoff type situation where he was at the wheel directing traffic about, you know, taking customer accounts and spending them on whatever Alameda was spending them on. I'm not a lawyer, but like, that's going to come down to specifics. Is there correspondence with Sam telling Carolyn Ellison to do X, Y, and Z or telling Gary Wang to do X, Y, and Z? Hard to say as of now. Clearly, the government has a very strong case. Ultimately, it's going to come down to just how well, Sam fights it. If there's any exculpatory evidence that he can summon, but clearly the fact that his two of his top lieutenants are cooperating, you know, in a matter of weeks after this thing was launched, um, which, you know, this thing was launched only within weeks of the allegations of this misconduct even coming to light. I mean, the speed here makes you think that Sam is cooked. Yeah. Like you said, Carolyn Ellison, his former, uh, Paramour and uh, CEO of Alameda, she has already said she's going to testify that Sam ordered her to disguise funds, to move them around, to essentially embezzle money. Like you said, we don't know if that's in 
text messages, if it's emails, what that evidence is, whether it's sort of a she said, he said. Sam is a big signaler. And I, I you know, I, I like I wonder whether or not like there's going to be some like disappearing messages parts of this case that could be like, you know, this is going to be a very millennial people communicate like millennials, right? So, so like I, I imagine there's going to be like document preservation questions about that are going to come come to the fore. That's why I say it's about details. One person we have not heard much from is Ryan Salem. He was the, the co-CEO of FTX. There's been like no news on that front in the last two weeks. I, I presume that he is also cooperating since he was allegedly behind tipping off the authorities in the Bahamas as to some of what was going on even before the company filed for bankruptcy. But since then, there has been nothing written about this guy. And I'm curious if you're hearing anything whatsoever. Yeah. So so Ryan has probably been on my radar more than the other FTX execs just because Ryan was a major political donor, unlike Carolyn Ellison or Gary Wang. Um, Ryan was you know, donating to Republicans, including to his girlfriend who was running for Congress in, I think, Long Island. There's documents suggesting that he did tip off kind of the Bahamian regulators. Ryan has lawyered up as all these people have. You know, I wonder what his role kind of in the campaign finance allegations might be. There's been no announcement that he's cooperating, but then again, they don't have to announce who's cooperating. He is one of like three or four kind of other top executives who have not announced plea deals. The problem, um, and this is what SDNY definitely wants to communicate publicly, right, is that like the window for cooperation is not closing, but it closes at some point, right? And there is an advantage if you think that you are personally legally liable to striking a deal when SDNY needs you the most, right? And like, is it possible that a month from now, not all the deals are on the table? Maybe. And that that probably is, is a factor in why Carolyn Ellison and Gary Wang, both of whom have hired, you know, white-collar criminal defense attorneys and people who have worked at SDNY, part of why they're cooperating so quickly might be based on that same logic, which is, you know, you want to cooperate before somebody else cooperates. Teddy, I, I thought of you the other day when I saw that uh, SBF was released into the custody of his parents on a $250 million bond secured against his parents' house. And by the way, from my understanding, the $250 million is sort of a symbolic number. It's not what they had to put up. Yeah, it's sort of a misnomer. But Sam's parents were not exactly neutral third parties here. I mean, they were both deeply involved at FTX at various points. Um, Sam's father in particular, Joseph Bankman, he acted as a, a lawyer. He was sort of a deal maker at various points. So sort of um, surprising perhaps that um, he was sort of released uh, on his own recognizance uh, under the custody of his parents. Sometimes like I feel like in legal coverage, like the photos are more interesting than actual words, right? So it's just interesting seeing like, you know, photos of Sam with his parents, like leaving court, you know, with like a scra scraggly beard and clearly uh, in a suit, uh, not wearing uh, his usual outfit. I've been writing about Barbara Freed, Sam's mom, for a number of years now. She kind of started this Democratic fundraising group that was very popular in Silicon Valley. Joe Bankman was kind of FTX's first lawyer. You know, he only became an official employee more recently. But I'm totally speculating here. But like, is it possible that like the two of them end up kind of at some legal risk? I think the FTX new uh, CEO has said that they're investigating the parents' role in the company, whatever that I means. That's just them investigating. That doesn't mean that there's actually any legal risk, really. But, you know, they themselves have lawyers. You know, they themselves have spokespeople. Like, they know that, you know, they're not neutral third parties here and that they were invested in the rise and, you know, they could be liable in the fall. I also wonder about Sam's brother, Gabe, who kind of oversee all of Sam's political work. Obviously, there's some campaign finance allegations in here. Like, does Gabe get potentially singed by this in some way? I mean, he already has been. You know, he basically, his career's probably been ruined. But, you know, does he have any legal exposure here? Clearly, this is a family affair. And ultimately, it's not just like a typical scenario where, you know, you 
are hosting your son as he's released on bond to get out of jail. I mean, ultimately, the parents themselves could need to post their own bail. I mean, we're speculating wildly here, but this is not a normal, like, my son is at legal risk and I'm taking care of him. They themselves will be actors in the story. They'll be in the movie. Well, even if Sam or his parents don't have to actually post that $250 million bond, that is 25 times what Bernie Madoff had to pay. Not a great sign for this guy. But Teddy, thanks so much for being here. It's great to have you back. And I'll see you on Slack. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.